so she's going to come this morning, and uh, I am really excited that uh, she could share not only a little bit of her story, but how it was as well. So if you would, uh, welcome back. As Russ mentioned, we're continuing to move through the book of John today, and we are coming to John 11, which is um, the well-known story of a man named Lazarus. What I want to share this morning um, has been a deeply personal journey for me. As I've wrestled with pain and brokenness, wondering what to do and how to respond, I've experienced this passage in a new way. I think that we tend to um, focus on the miracle that occurs in John 11, to the seventh sign that John recounts to unveil the nature of Jesus' divinity. But I found myself more drawn to Jesus' interactions with Mary and Martha in the midst of their grief. So this morning, um, I'm going to briefly share with you why this has so deeply resonated with me. And then I want us to take some time to practice um, corporate lament together. But first, um, let's pray. Jesus, help me to faithfully communicate your heart this morning. Nothing more and nothing less. Amen. On September 15th, 2008, I was sitting in a theology class with sweaty palms and a racing heart. I was three weeks into my freshman year of college, living in Chicago and loving my newfound independence. But just a few days before that, I had found out that my dad, a vibrantly healthy man in his 50s, had developed jaundice out of nowhere. After a suspicious scan, he was set to undergo diagnostic testing that would get to the bottom of what was going on. I sat in that classroom not really paying attention to anything that my professor was saying. I was overwhelmed with fear and anxiety waiting to hear the results of my dad's testing. I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew what was coming. But even so, hearing my mom finally utter over the phone, they found cancer, initiated a panic attack. The very next week, I quit school and had moved home. I happened to run into a loved one in town, and our conversation quickly turned to my dad and his terminal diagnosis. As I told this person how devastated I was, he looked at me quizzically and said, Abigail, he's going to heaven. Facing pain, tragedy, and death as a follower of Jesus is complicated, isn't it? because we believe in a God who's supposedly making all things new. Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life, but how do we reconcile that with the reality of the brokenness around us? Just a week ago, three young fathers, all part of the Moody Aviation Program, were killed here in town in a tragic accident. Earlier this week, I got um, news that my 21-year-old cousin, um, is in ICU fighting off a mysterious infection around his heart. A couple weeks ago, a 15-year-old kid from the church where I grew up was killed when the vehicle his family was traveling in 
was rear-ended while they were on family vacation. And then there's tragedy on a larger scale. Children being snatched from their mother's arms and placed in detention centers. A tour boat capsized and 17 people lost their lives. And I'm sure you could add to this list with your own personal tragedies. It's taken me all nine years since my dad's death to allow myself to be honest with God, to move beyond this victory narrative of he's going to heaven, and to really grapple with anger and the questions. Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you do something? And so it is Jesus' response to these same questions posed by Mary and Martha in John 11 that has moved me so deeply in the last couple of weeks. At the beginning of this passage, these two sisters send word to Jesus that their brother, Lazarus, is sick. We learn from the passage that Jesus had deep affection for these three siblings. In fact, when the sisters send this message to Jesus um, that their brother is ill, they only refer to him as the one that you love. Jesus, upon hearing this news, has kind of a bizarre response. He decides to stay where he is for two more days. So by the time he arrives to town, Lazarus had already been dead for four days, and Mary and Martha would have been thoroughly immersed in Jewish mourning rituals. Verse 17 will be on the screen. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God who is coming into the world. Can you relate to her deep anguish and pain? Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you fix this? Jesus responds by saying very plainly, Martha, your brother will rise again. To which she responds, I know he will rise again on the last day. She's likely referring to Daniel 12, 13, a passage that she would have been very familiar with that references the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. It's almost like she thinks Jesus is placating her with promises about the future, kind of like my family member did. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Jesus. I know that he'll rise again someday. To which Jesus responds, No, I am the resurrection and the life. Ego me, the essence of who I am is life arising up. Martha, don't believe in a platitude, in a future promise that does nothing for your grief and your loss now. Believe in me, 
Don't place your desperate hope and trust in this abstract idea. Believe in me. Did you notice that when Jesus asked Martha if she believes, she doesn't respond by saying that she believes in the words Jesus just declared, that the one who believes in me will live even though he dies? No, Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah. I believe in you, the person of Jesus. Sometimes the best we can do is hold on to the who we know, even when the what makes no sense or fails to comfort us. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Please don't miss what comes next. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Here is what has struck me anew these last few weeks. Jesus, the very one who is about to resurrect this man who has been dead for four days, the same Jesus who at this point has told both Martha and the disciples that Lazarus will be raised to life again, this Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And then he weeps. I think we miss some of the depth of Jesus' reaction here in our English translations. This phrase, deeply moved in spirit, in the original language, literally is translated to snort like an angry horse, to roar with rage. So Jesus has this intense, angry response, and then he weeps. Now this was not weeping um, that was loud and demonstrative that would have characterized Jewish mourning. This was not weeping with the intent of being noticed. This was weeping, a tender expression of an inner emotional response. Can you grasp how profound this is? Jesus has the divine power to bring Lazarus back to life. And yet, when he is confronted with a breach of shalom by the physical illness and death of his friend, He's deeply moved with rage and sadness. He weeps. I would suggest that we have a lot to learn from this. We live in a culture that so avoids pain and discomfort that I believe we've lost the ability to practice the spiritual discipline of lament with any consistency. We struggle to simply sit with brokenness to allow ourselves to be moved with anger toward a breach of shalom, to snort like an angry horse and weep for any length of time. We practice 
a censored theology that too quickly moves to resolution and resurrection without allowing ourselves to feel and experience the pain of injustice. And yet Jesus, even when he's about to raise this man back to life, is not put off by the deep grief, frustration, and questions that Mary and Martha lay before him. In fact, he meets them in their lament and practices lament alongside them. From a medical standpoint, one sign of brain death is a lack of response to painful stimuli. I would suggest that if you are not moved to deep anger and sadness in the face of brokenness and breach of shalom, then you need to check your spiritual pulse. If babies being literally ripped from their mother's arms and stored in converted warehouses for days and months on end does not stir up in you a deep sense of anger and lament, check your spiritual pulse. If children gunning down other children does not move you to indignation and sadness, check your spiritual pulse. If racial injustice and acts of terror toward people of another race simply because of the color of their skin does not move you to weep and snort like an angry horse, check your spiritual pulse. We follow a Jesus who is so deeply affected by the pain and injustice and suffering around him that by the death of his friend, by a deep sense of things are not the way they're supposed to be, that he gave himself the space and the time to express an almost guttural sadness and anger. If we fail to do the same in the face of brokenness around us, I fear we are living a watered-down theology. Peter Enns says this about lament. The church needs a healthy theology of lament, not an agreed-upon short moment of sorrow so things can get back to normal, but a season to complain, be perplexed, shattered, to be angry, without excuse, without being made to feel broken or weak, without trying to fix pain and make it behave. We need to make room for lament because lament squeezes out simple answers. The church needs a healthy theology of lament where we accept that life doesn't play out according to the box we place God in. Where we sit with those in pain quietly and respectfully, empathizing, not fixing. Lament dares us to risk letting go of a well-behaved and predictable system and swap it out for one where faith and trust in God, not certitude and order, are the beginning, middle, and end of our journey. The church needs a healthy theology of lament to embrace lament as a normal and pervasive reality among those who walk by faith and not by sight. To accept those who lament as wise teachers living at the center of their faith community, not disruptive children who need a timeout. For those of you here today who are living through a season of brokenness, I want you to hear that Jesus weeps with you. And there is space in his presence for your questions, for your anger, for your sadness and grief. Maybe you're with Martha. You struggle to believe the what, and the best you can do right now is to sit with the who. I want you to know that he is here with you, and he snorts like an angry horse 
at the pain and brokenness you're experiencing. When even your community cannot tolerate to sit with you in your pain a minute longer, he remains. And we, your community, need you. We need your pain, your lament, your questions. For the rest of us, Jesus invites us to practice lament. And we have to start strengthening our muscles of lament. To practice our ability to sit in pain and grief without immediately moving to a victory narrative or a desire to fix it. When you feel within yourself a desire to escape a difficult conversation or to comfort someone who's experiencing pain and brokenness rather than just sitting with them in their pain and naming what is broken, consider the example of Jesus with Mary and Martha. Perhaps all that is necessary is for you to be present in the pain, for you to weep and snort like an angry horse. My dad used to tell me that as a toddler, whenever I would get hurt or become upset, he would scoop me up in his arms and I would just start punching him and hitting him. It was almost like I was so sad and angry that I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I took it out through my fists and he was the closest target. I didn't know it then, but my dad was an earthly example of how Jesus has received me in the years I have spent grieving over the loss of my dad. And what a beautiful image of how I think Jesus receives all of us in the midst of pain and sadness. I think he scoops us up in his arms, even as we pound on him and assail him with our how could you's and where were you's. And he embraces us, absorbing our pain and weeping with us. You probably know the end of this story. We know that Jesus raises Lazarus back to life and then begins the slowly unfolding journey that will eventually lead to his own death and resurrection. And ultimately, that is the very reason that we do not, as the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonian church, grieve as those with no hope. But today I'm going to stop here. I want us to sit in a practice of lament, to call out what is broken, and sit in the hard reality of the breach of shalom. So in a minute, um, there are going to be some prompts up on the screen. And in each of the pews, there um, should be some sticky notes and pens. What we're going to do is we're going to write a corporate song of lament. So I want you to each take a sticky note and choose one of the prompts on the screen and finish it on the sticky note. And when you're done, um, come, there will be time for you to come over here to this wall um, on the side here and just stick your sticky note up on the wall. And at the end, we're going to um, take a few of those and compile them into a, a prayer, a corporate prayer of lament. And there's also um, the candle lighting station if you um, would like to spend some time praying and um, lamenting.